You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a paper from the Dockland Encounters Symposium. This symposium took place in the National Maritime Museum of Ireland on the 22nd of June 2017. It was organised by Joanna Robinson. This episode features a paper by Neve Moore-Cherry from University College Dublin. Her paper, A Space of Flow and Flux, 21st Century Dublin Docklands, was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Thank you to Joanna for organising the event today um, and for, for asking me to come along. I suppose unlike um, John, this is not a new research project. This is actually getting me to think about something that I worked on quite a while ago. So when Joanna asked, um, would I contribute to the, uh, the, the symposium today, um, it really made me think again about some of the work that I've been doing about 10 years ago and what has changed in the interim and how we can think about Docklands. And in particular, what has the last 10 years, the period of austerity, done to how we think and how our Docklands are actually um, constructed and how they're being consumed so my paper draws on some of the same themes, I'm very glad to say, as John. Um, I was a bit worried following John. This is all going to seem very different. Um, but some of the themes he mentioned in terms of capital accumulation, precarity, porousness, vulnerability, all of these issues, I think, are as relevant to the 21st century Docklands as they were to the 19th and 20th century Docklands. So I've titled the paper A Space of Flow and Flux. Um, because for me, the Docklands are constantly changing and they're constantly being reconstructed by flows of people, ideas and capital through that particular space. So in terms of how I want to frame the paper, um, I want to draw on some literature in geography because that's my discipline. Um, But to think about Docklands as an urban neighbourhood. So to think about them in terms of urban neighbourhoods within the city. And in terms of doing this, I think there's a few different ideas that I want to just just explore a little bit. Um, But thinking about how cities have changed as the world has changed. So we talk about globalisation. We talk about living in an informational society. And Manuel Castells has written about this and what this means for cities. And he says that actually cities are a place that are between spaces of flows and spaces of places. So a lot of people are talking in this global world that everything is just movable. Things are flowing through space and through time and that it's very hard to capture anything, ideas, investment, whatever it might be. But we also know that spaces are lived. Cities are lived places. And this is what he means by spaces of places. So in other words, what I would like to do is try and see Docklands as these in-between spaces, as somewhere that's lived, but somewhere that's also subject to these flows that are constantly moving through it. And this brings us then to think a little bit more about, well, well, what does this mean? Because many geographers write that in the context of globalisation, cities are becoming ubiquitous. They all look the same. They have the same processes acting on them. And actually, all of these processes that are flowing around the world freely through the internet, through global investment capital... It's deterritorializing places. It's, it's making place irrelevant um, because all of these global flows are just becoming, making everywhere become the same. 
And this particular approach comes from Marxist geography, which talked about how as capital is accumulated, space becomes annihilated by time. So if you can move things around more quickly through new technologies, then space doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter where you are. And as a geographer, I take great exception to that. Harvey, who's a, who is a, came from a Marxist background, talked about this notion of time-space compression. And he said, very similar to this, this idea of the annihilation of space by time, that actually if you can move things much quicker, then things can be located at greater distances. There's no need to actually have docklands in close proximity to one another. You can move things from one part of the world to another much more quickly. Um, so cities... Many cities, cities on mid-scale like Dublin, actually become irrelevant in this globalised economy. But others argue that's, that's missing out what's a key part of the urban and urban neighbourhoods in particular, because cities are relational spaces. They're not just these, these blank canvases on which these global processes operate. But cities are constituted through how they interact with other places and at multiple scales. And I think John really exemplified this really well when he, when he talked about how docklands encounter other docklands and how important all of these ports around the Irish Sea were to each other. So what I'd like to argue here is really thinking along the lines of Massey is that docklands are places that interact with others where various different processes are encountered, but they're grounded and they're remade through particular places. And I'm really focusing here on Dublin docklands. But I also wanted to look at this within the context of what's being termed policy mobilities literature. So it links to this idea of flow. And what people like Jamie Peck and Nick Theodore are talking about is this idea that in this world where we can exchange ideas so quickly, in the blink of an eye, in the click of a mouse, that what's happening is that governments around the world are looking at what's happening in other places. And there's this fast policy transfer happening so a government sees something happening in London Docklands and goes, that's a great idea. We're going to implement that in Dublin. And they're literally taking processes from one place very quickly, not rethinking them, not trying in any way to reground them, and literally just moving them um, into new spaces. And people have developed this idea, people like Colin McFarlane and Eugene McCann and Kevin Ward, who talk about cities as assemblages. And I think this is a really nice way we can tie all of these ideas together. Because urban assemblages, according to McCann and Ward, this, this idea, this concept, is a way in which we can frame the travels and transfers, the political struggles, the relational connections, and the territorial fixities and mobilities that make places. And I think this is nowhere more important than in a, in a dockland zone within a city. A place of political struggle a place of these relational connections that John has described, a place where people travel to and from and through, a place where ideas and people are transferred, where goods are transferred from one place to another, and a place that's at once fixed in terms of the physical structures of the Docklands, but it's also mobile because it's constantly been restructured by these, these ideas and flows going through it. But I think what I'd also like to try and, and suggest here is that these places are not only acted on, but they actually have a form of agency themselves. And in the same, in the same piece, McCann and Ward go on to say that these assemblages, these territories, these places 
are not just constituted by elements deducted from the flow, from these global flows of people, etc., but they also in turn shape, reorient and reconstitute wider flows. So they're constantly reconfiguring the geographies of territoriality and relationality. So this makes docklands are dynamic spaces. These are spaces where connections and relationships are constantly being changed and challenged. They're places that constantly change in terms of how they interact, not only with the world at large, but also with the spaces around them and the people around them within the cities. So thinking about how Joanna has, has kind of titled this symposium, I'd like to suggest that we can encounter Docklands as assemblages, where global, national and local flows of people, ideas and capital come together. These things are captured, they're reworked, they're situated within particular everyday practices. The practice of the loading and unloading of the ships, the practice of the flows of global investment capital coming through the Financial Services Centre. But they also interplay with broader societal structures to produce dynamic urban environments. So for me, the destiny of Docklands is shaped by broader forces, but the Docklands also play their role in reshaping how these global processes are grounded within particular places. So what I'm going to do in the, the presentation is to talk a little bit through Dublin Docklands and how we can maybe use this type of idea, the idea of the assemblage, to try and unpack some of the changes that have been happening in the city over the last 30 or 40 years. The next slide is probably redundant in terms of the audience we have here today. But if we think about the history of Dublin Docklands, and John has done a really good job in actually setting this up for me, the Docklands have been a nodal point for flows of goods, people, ideas through the cities for many decades. As the images show, and as John's descriptions illustrated, the Docklands have traditionally been a hive of activity, an area that's fluid, where things come and go, but also an area that's, that's bounded by the structures within it. These, some of these examples are, as a geographer, some of my favourite um, images of the old Dublin Docklands, the old custom house in Dublin, which was on Wellington Quay, much further up the river from the, the current custom house today. But I think this map from 1756, this Roke map, is just stunning when you look at it in detail, because it really gives a sense of the river as being this hive of activity, with the tall ships, with the tugs in the river, this, it almost looks like the, the ships are, are on top of one another, struggling to get access to the quayside to load and unload their people and their goods. The Docklands are dynamic. They are a hive of activity. But I would also suggest that they're also what we might term a space in a continuous process of becoming. It's very hard to bound these places. We can bound individual pieces of it. But in terms of bounding, where does the Docklands begin and end? It's quite difficult. What this map shows, and it's taken from um, Gilligan's book from 1988, which is a history of Dublin Port, which is an absolutely fascinating read and one that I loved reading when I was doing um, my PhD research. It shows how the Docklands are actually intimately connected to the port. How the evolution of the 20th century Docklands and the late 20th century Docklands are absolutely linked to the success of Dublin Port. In many cases, the reason why we had vacant and derelict docklands emerge was because of the decline of the port, 
So places like Liverpool, where the, the end of empire meant the end of this global trade, or at least the reduction in global trade. In Dublin, the vacant docklands emerged because the port moved further out to sea. And this map shows you the, the land that has been reclaimed from the sea um, over time, from the 1860s through to, to 1988, um, as Dublin port expanded and grew. So as it expanded, ship sizes increased, containerization took over, more and more open land space and deeper water was needed. And that left the old docklands behind. So in, a, in, a, in some ways, Dublin's story in terms of the emergence of vacant docklands is a very different story to the story in many other cities. And this process continues today um, with the success of, of Dublin Port. So the docklands are a victim, if you like, of the port's success. And during the 1980s, this area was kind of looked at as a sort of an interstitial zone in the city. So on the edge, you see the custom house schematically drawn out. The areas that are numbered are the current Dublin port lands. And the, the spaces in between were these kind of transitional zones, this zone where there were there strong and long-lasting communities, but physically spaces that have become derelict and, and economically defunct. So... How did we get to this? This notion of a Dublin Docklands. And I'd like to argue that Dublin Docklands is a constructive space. I don't think until the mid-1990s that Dublin Docklands was a term that was actually used in terms of naming a part of the city. It's a cultural and it's a social and it's a political construction. And I think for many Dubliners, um, when you talk about Dublin Docklands, if you talked about it in the 80s or 90s, they'd be like you talking about the keys or you talking about the port. It was one of those, those places um, that was rarely encountered unless you had business there or you were, you were some of the communities living there. But this now is an area that's internationally recognised. It's been constructed by government policy. And what I'd like to do for the rest of the, the talk is to talk about that remaking of this part of the city, the remaking of Docklands, as assemblages, focusing in on, on three different time frames, but I think three different sets of assemblages or processes that were going on in that space. I see my bullet point numbering didn't work out for some reason on this slide. But what I want to do, okay, they're all, they're all important, that's why they're all labelled number one. What I want to do broadly is to, to look at the changes in this part of the city since 1986 in three broad timeframes. The initial timeframe from 1986 to roughly 1996, a decade. And I'm going to argue that what was going on at this particular point in terms of remaking Docklands was really nothing to do with the Docklands, but it was about repositioning Ireland on the global stage. In the second piece, what I'd like to talk about is the changes, the big changes that happened when this constructed space of Dublin Docklands became popular discourse among policymakers and planners. And I'm really going to talk about the period there from 1997 to 2007, where essentially what was happening is that the, these geographies of relationality, how this part of the city connected to the rest and to the outside world, was being reconfigured. And then I'm going to talk a little bit, and I'm probably on, on less solid ground on this, but talk a little bit about what's been happening since the economic crash in 2008 
And what does that mean for how docklands are constructed and the kinds of flows and fluxes going through that part of the city um, at the present time? So if we think about the first, the first period, the Custom House docks in the mid-1980s, bring back to your mind that map, the hive of activity, the ships and the tugs on the river, and then look at this static image. It's an area that's been abandoned. It's an area where the docks are no longer functioning. There's not a boat in sight. The warehouses have pretty much been closed down and are not being used to any great extent. Open spaces are being used for car parking. And this part of the city is just a kilometre from O'Connell Street. When you see this, this image of emptiness, of vacancy, um, what you see here is a, a part of the city or a space that's really been created by its vulnerability to changes in the global economy. This is a precarious space. This was changed because of changes to the port, as the port moved eastwards, as mechanisation took over, um, as larger ship sizes meant the port activities were moving. But it's also an area that had been left abandoned by government policy. The 1980s was a time of recession. There was very little focus on this particular part of the city. But what I'd argue is that when the Urban Renewal Act was introduced in 1986 by government, the key, this area became a key part of repositioning Ireland and Ireland's economy in this new emerging globalised financial world. The key thing um, marking this change was the introduction of the Urban Renewal Act in 1986. And despite number, numerous attempts before this to introduce various policies that might have helped regenerate the Custom House docks part of the city and its immediate environs in the northeast inner city, they'd largely been ignored. However, in 1986, the government introduced this new act, very much importing ideas from elsewhere. So the docklands became a test bed or an experimental space within this, which these new ideas in terms of architecture and planning were being imported from the US, from the UK, through what we would term area-based regeneration policy ideas. The idea essentially was that the government would put policies in place that would attract international private investment capital. And the government in doing this, in designating parts of the city for this kind of regeneration, were in essence reorienting global investment flows of capital into Dublin. In order to deliver on this, ideas, new people, had to be brought into this part of the city. And what we see is that the success of this approach to regeneration in Docklands was really only possible through new combinations of global, local, state and private actors involved in the city. So you have a combination of global investment capital, you have a combination of central government providing incentives to private capital, you have new developers wanting to get a piece of the, the action um, in a Dublin that was beginning to turn around. And Docklands within this discourse were really being promoted as a national champion. If you got Docklands right, then you could drive the whole economy upwards. The Docklands, or the Custom House Docks area in particular, was being repositioned as a jewel in the crown. And that term was used by one of the TDs in the dull debates around whether or not this regeneration project should go ahead. 
So the Docklands, or at least a small part of the Docklands, took on this iconic, this flagship status as being a symbol of the New Ireland. The idea would be wholesale redevelopment, modernisation, drawing on global ideas, globalising essentially this part of inner city Dublin. But it was not just ideas and planning and architecture that were being brought or in policy that were coming through here. International architects were brought in to design this project. Benjamin Thompson Associates, an architectural firm based in Boston, who had been responsible for many other Dockland regeneration projects around the world, were commissioned to redevelop Dublin Docklands. And you can see in this image, this is a, an artist's image of what the redevelopment would look like. That was, there's nothing particularly Irish about it. There's nothing particularly maritime about it. It's very much a globalised landscape of residence, of commercial activities, and so on. So it's a really, I think, first example of where ideas from elsewhere are literally being wholesale imported into an area with little concern, I think, for its, its maritime history and heritage. Not just ideas around planning, but also ideas around how to govern these particular parts of the city. And there was a broader kind of idea at this time that really the way to get anything done, and this is very much coming from a, a Thatcherite perspective, was to roll back the state, remove the local authority from the area, and put a new, a new agency in there to do this work. This new agency, the Custom House Docks Authority, promoted the Financial Services Centre as the motor of the Irish economy. And Docklands became a hub or a node that would become attractive to the global service economy, a magnet for inward flows of investment, and a way of stymieing outward flows of human capital. One of the arguments around the construction of the IFSC was that this would prevent the brain drain of highly educated Irish people going elsewhere for work. So while this is a space that's open and fluid, it was also a space to try and bound and control in that outward migration of people from Ireland. So I would argue that during this particular period, the function of Docklands or the perception of Docklands was about projecting Ireland outwards, sending a message about a new Ireland and reasserting its position in the new world order. But at the same time, what the government were doing here was reorienting global flows of people, ideas and capital for particular political economic goals in Ireland. So trying to control the flow in and out of people, trying to import ideas and ground them in Dublin city, and trying to attract capital from other places into Dublin. And I suppose the epitome of this is, is this postcard. I find this really kind of fascinating. Um, a postcard of the International Financial Services Centre. And I bought this um, probably in the mid-90s. I remember buying it at the time because I thought it would be a useful image for what I was doing. But when I think about it now, who else produces an image of an office building and sends it as a postcard? <laughs> so this tells us something about the kind of marketing, the kind of branding, the kind of image building that was going on with this particular um, part of the Docklands redevelopment. The second kind of set of assemblages or, or kind of periods that I want to talk about here is the period from 1997 to 2007, where what I would suggest is that the, the geographies of relationality, how this part of the city was connecting to other places, 
but also territoriality, how we could ground global processes in Ireland to our benefit. These were being reconfigured through a new kind of set of planning ideas, through new sets of governance and so on. This is the uh, wider Docklands area, and actually this is a reverse image of, of the image that John showed. So John showed us a map from the river looking in, the area bounded by the railway, by the, the uh, canal, and by the docks. So we're looking at this the other way around. But this is an aerial shot um, from 1996. And on this corner, I do have a pointer, but I know they don't work on these screens, so I won't use it. But in this corner, you can see the Custom House Docks development, that new development that was really um, constructed from 86 through to kind of the mid-1990s. But as you go further east, north and south of the river, there's vast swathes of empty space. And at that time, the Docklands um, was really being seen as something that was a success within the city. And the government at this point decided that what was necessary was to engage in a more strategic vision for Docklands. And I think this is where this notion of Docklands as a constructed space comes from. In the context of changing international frameworks, a kind of a slightly better global economy, a kind of a beginning to boom Irish economy, there was, the Docklands were seen as spaces of opportunity. Spaces where the success taken at the Custom House docks could actually be expanded into a much broader area. And it's at this point that the government decide to bound an area, draw lines on a map that construct Dublin Docklands. 1,300 acre space um, within the inner city, 10% of the area between the Royal and the Grand Canal. And um, so a significant part of the inner city that would now become Dublin Docklands. But this was also done within a much broader framework of what might be termed or is termed in planning circles as this turn to community. Because despite the economic and the physical successes of the Custom House Docks area, there was very little benefit to the local communities in that area um, with the, the emerging um, financial services centre and associated activities. And there was a real sense that the property-led approach that had been taken had really failed the local communities within, within that particular area. KPMG, private sector consultants, who you wouldn't expect to be terribly critical of this kind of approach, were pretty hard-hitting in their assessment of how this project had evolved. And they said that there's been little benefit to date from the redevelopment of the Custom House Docks Development Authority site to the neighbouring communities in terms of employment, amenity and facilities. Social problems such as drugs, poor educational attainment and marginalised communities remain. So while the, the Docklands was a success in positioning Ireland on the global stage, it had major issues in terms of how the Custom House Docks area was interacting with its immediate communities within the city. As a result, this strategic vision that the government wished to take um, focused in on a number of different elements. The area within the red line is the area formerly, formally bounded as the Dublin Docklands. Um, a very large area, as I said, north and south of the river, but taking in quite strong and long-standing communities such as those in East Wall, in Ringsend Irishtown and so on. So it was a very different area than the kind of brownfield site that had been um, the, the focus of the first phase of regeneration within this part of the city. And just for comparison, 
there's the area that had been the subject um, of regeneration um, in 1986 to 96, the area shaded in the slightly purpley colour. So you can see the expansion in, in what was being considered um, an area ripe for regeneration. During this period, I would argue, what really began to accelerate was this idea that Docklands was a place within which different cultures could be encountered, within which different ideas could be encountered, and that they were a space within the city that both facilitated flows of ideas, people and capital, but also captured those flows and grounded them in very particular ways within the city. That period was a time when the physical environment changed rapidly. We'd new infrastructure created. Um, the Beckett Bridge, for example, across the River Liffey, down by the, the National Convention Centre, the Convention Centre itself being constructed, the Grand Canal Theatre on the south side of the river um, being constructed, a new space where international entertainment events, cultural events, were being brought to Dublin. But it was also a place that was really facilitating this capturing of global flows of capital. And it's really at this time that the, the success, if you like, of the, the regeneration story from an economic point of view was really being felt. The new economy, we had the 19th century very strongly based on the industrial economy, but the new service economy, knowledge production, um, financial um, investment capital, all of these, these ideas, these, these, this capital, the ideas, the people associated with them, all were wanted to be in Dublin. So we have Google, for example, um, and I didn't realise until I actually looked at that photo in some detail that Google have called that building Google Docs. Um, the wider area is known as Silicon Docs, I think in homage to Silicon Valley, because of the number um, of international um, technology companies within that area. But this became a space within the city within which these different international companies wanted to ground themselves and locate. This is the Europe, Middle East, Africa and EU headquarters of Google. Um, but also it became a part of the city where these international technology companies wanted to encounter each other. And I think this is a really interesting point about this. And one of the things that strikes me about what happened during this time is that despite government attempts to create um, a digital hub on the other end of the city, up around the Guinness storehouse, this area evolved much more organically um, as an area where these international companies wanted to locate. I think what's also interesting in terms of how this, this part of the city captured kind of the global imagination and global flows of ideas and connections is that this area is now, as the, um, the bottom image shows, International Aviation Finance Hub. 80% of all global leasing of aircraft in the world happens out of Dublin Docklands. And I think this is, this is really interesting because this, to me, is how the Docklands has evolved into this new transportation economy. So where the focus is not so much perhaps on on ships anymore, it's, it's now on aircraft. So although the technology is different, the Docklands still provides this key role in terms of being this place where these flows are managed from and where these flows, flows happen. But I also think what's particularly interesting about that, that image is that it says Ireland International Aviation Finance Hub. And that's, that's incorrect because it's Dublin Docklands 
and it's the South Docklands that are this international aviation finance hub. So again, this to me is, is part of this notion that the Docklands are, are really uh, providing this core role to the Irish economy. The, this repositioning going on through Docklands in terms of what Ireland can do and how Ireland is connected to these global flows of ideas, people and capital. And in terms of doing that, new actors and structures had to be put in place, new governance practices brought from other places. The Dublin Docklands Development Authority was in charge of this part of the city rather than Dublin City Council or Dublin Port. And what this period shows is this idea of these flows of fixed and mobile public and private finance through the Docklands. Much of the infrastructure, such as the bridge, for example, um, was funded by public finance. The flows of international investment capital are mobile finance. But the creation of these, this built environment, the physical building of the theatre on the convention centre, is very much about fixing international capital in a particular place. So I think what the, the, the Docklands shows us at this point is this idea of these increasingly distended or extended relationships, but also these very localised relationships all at once. But also, at this time, it became a site of political struggle. And political struggle over how these flows of international capital and ideas and people were interacting with the everyday life of those within the Docklands communities. So particular issues arose around high-rise development and the new buildings being constructed in the area. And the, the, the bubble is a quote from a local who said that Spencer Dock, the development at Spencer Dock, may be bigger and better than anything else, but it's still too high a price to pay for those living in its shadow. The discourse around the area was you could smell the money in the room as the Docklanders met. So high finance being located in Docklands but also at the same time, local communities feeling increasingly marginalised from what was happening around them. So as the Dublin Docklands, I suppose, became deepingly, more deeply embedded in the, the broader political economy of the global economy, but also became of increasing importance in terms of the economic fortunes of the city, it didn't happen in an even way. So what the Docklands represents in some ways is a geography of uneven development, um, that's very much a part of how capital accumulation happens. So if we were to summarise in a way, or to, to kind of try and think through what this period meant between 1997 to 2007, I would say it's about refixing this relationality, this territoriality, but also that focus in terms of dependence on international investment capital for the regeneration of this area made this part of the city incredibly vulnerable. Dublin Docklands is well established as a world centre for internationally traded financial services and makes a major economic contribution to Ireland. One of the fastest growing locations for financial services, 300 leading banks and financial institutions, employing approximately 18,000 people. These companies have chosen the Docklands hub as their preferred location to trade providing products and services to a global customer base. Now, if you change some of those words around, well, you could, you could make, this could be a description of 19th century Docklands. If you took out financial services and had some other commodity in there, um, you could read this as a continuation of the story of what Docklands has also done. 
but its particular sectoral focus on the financial services sector made this area particularly vulnerable when the economic crash happened in 2008. And this is what was produced. This is the building many of you may have seen along North Wall Quay. It doesn't look like that now, it's just recently been finished. But this was to be the new headquarters of the Anglo-Irish Bank, and we all know what happened that bank. Many people argued after the crash and when this, this development uh, came to a standstill that this was actually a symbolic building and it should be left like this, it shouldn't be finished. As a reminder of what happens when you get this excess capital accumulation, when an area is so porous to the global economy and its, its vagaries that it actually makes a part of the city incredibly precarious. But as, as we know, the central bank bought it and it's now, it's now being completed. Since 2008, this story has been well rehearsed. We obviously know significant austerity measures were brought into Ireland to try and deal with this, this crash and this crisis. And many people argued that that would mark the end of this approach to urban policymaking and urban redevelopment, that cities wouldn't be vulnerable anymore because international investment capital and policymakers had learned their lesson. Well, do we need to say more? People talked about the emergence of austerity urbanism. So how could you actually do urban urbanism in this context where nobody had money? It wasn't just the public sector, it was also the private sector had, had lost their money in, in some instances. Um, and as we know, NAMA was established in Ireland to try and deal with this as a bad bank. But what I would argue is that what this did is make NAMA one of the key players now in how international investment capital encounters Dublin Docklands. So let me just talk a little bit about this, uh, just as my final points. So Dublin Docklands, in, in this kind of post-crisis context, what we see is that it's a, it's a site, it has become, I think, a site of political struggle. That empty building was highly symbolic of what went wrong. But it's also then become a struggle over the future of the city. So should we be so open to all of this international investment capital? And how can we shape our, our present and our future learning through the past? The Dublin Docklands, I think, um, embodies this notion of territorial fixity and mobility because the destiny of those empty buildings is shaped by inward and outward flows of mobile capital. So when the money left, when Ireland became too precarious, the regeneration of this part of the city just came to a standstill. But I'm going to show you in a minute what happens um, when those um, flows suddenly return. What happened in Dublin Docklands, we, many of us will know that the Docklands Development Authority was wound up by the government for various reasons. A vacuum of governance emerged and nobody quite knew what to do with, um, with this part of the city. So there's been a kind of a reworking of the relationship between the city and the Docklands through Dublin City Council now taking over the Docklands area once again. So in some ways there's been a reconnecting of the city back together through crisis. And NAMA has become critical in steering, guiding and reworking these spaces because so many developers in the area went bankrupt. NAMA is now one of the biggest actors in that part of the city. So what they've been doing is selling off big sites to international investment capital. So we're getting back into the same story again. 
This is one example, Capital Dock, an area that was uh, bought by an international investor called Heinz and is now under construction in the South Docks. This is another one, um, Project Wave, a big package of um, distressed assets sold by NAMA in the area to this new company, Oxley. So essentially what NAMA is, is now a new state actor which is steering international investment capital through this space once again. And NAMA has been instrumental in the creation of a new strategic development zone in conjunction with Dublin City Council. And just to, to kind of show you the uh, coloured images there are all sites currently under construction within a small part of the city, the Grand Canal Dock and the North, the North Docklands. Um, these were all sites controlled by NAMA, sites that have been sold off to international investment capital, which is now reshaping how this part of the Docklands is going to, to emerge. So I'm just going to, to finish up by trying to summarise in some way how 21st century and late 20th century Dublin Docklands is encountered. And I'd argue, going back to the start, that it's a space of flows, but also a space of places, because it's constituted of these interplays between global, national and local, public and private, fixed and mobile. And it's a place of flux, because it's continually being reworked by and reworking the flows of ideas, capital and people. Acknowledging that it's part of a much longer trajectory of placemaking in the city and this notion of relationality at different scales, I'm kind of going to leave you with a question to ponder on whether Dublin Docklands is a success or a failure. And I'd argue that that depends on your own positionality, where you're coming from, and your own perspective on what constitutes a city. Thank you.